Parkway Church. Glad you guys are with us this morning. Uh, if you are new here, because you're still visiting some family, um, and you, this is new to you, so glad you're here with us. We have been talking about uh, the series Nativity Scene. We're talking about the Christmas story, but more specifically, we're talking about the individuals and the character and the people that actually took part in the Christmas story. So oftentimes we hear the Christmas story, but we forget to remember that there was actual people just like you and me that had to have these amazing acts of obedience for this all to come to pass. Mary, a very young girl, had to actually in faithfulness trust God that she would be the mother of the Savior of the entire world. Joseph had to have the obedience and the trust in God to have his plans change and to raise Jesus as his very own and be the father of the Messiah. The shepherds had to come and they had to actually bear witness to what was happening and then they immediately went out praising God and telling everybody about what they had seen. And then last but not least, the wise men had to travel from a great distance, possibly months or even years, bringing these gifts that would actually tell about Jesus' eventual role as prophet, priest, and king. And they all had this amazing part to play. They all had this amazing acts of obedience and trust in God, and they all did such a great job. And we have learned so much from them. But here's the all-important question that we're going to ask today. That was their role. What is your role? What's mine? Well, what is our role? What is our response to the Christmas story? They all had their jobs. They all had their parts to play. What is ours? That's an important question to ask. And here's what it can't be. Here's the one thing it can't be. The answer that it absolutely cannot be is we can't just simply be spectators. That can't just be simply our job to sit back and be spectators. And we're not really taking part. We don't really have a part to play. We're just sitting back and going, wow, this is a great story. And then just fading to the background. And here's why. That job is actually already taken. Who are the spectators in the Christmas story? Who are the spectators? You're like, well, the wise men, they weren't. Mary definitely was not. Um, who is the spectators? We have... The spectators of the Christmas story. The sheep. For those of you guys wondering, I do not usually keep porcelain animals in my back pocket. That would be weird. But three people thought that was funny. All right. The sheep were just there. Did they have a job? No. They were just there. And here's the thing. Here's my hope that God has a bigger and greater plan for me than just what the sheep's role was. I tell you what, as I actually have this in my hand, this is a complete side note. I was going to buy a nativity set for actually this sermon prop, and I didn't. You want to know why? Because they are super expensive. Um, and it, it brought to my mind that I need to take this time and apologize to my mom and grandmother for all the nativity sets that I broke over the years as a child. I feel really bad about that. Now that I know how much they actually cost, and especially the one time that I actually ran into the nativity set on accident, and I broke baby Jesus. I know, right? Dude, you're a 10-year-old, and you see baby Jesus there, porcelain baby Jesus, and you're like, no, this cannot be good. I was going to my student pastor. <laughs> Kids, they have questions with our student pastors like, hey, how does dinosaurs fit into Genesis account, and how does the goodness of God come with his 
his absolute power. Me as a kid, I was going to my student pastor and be like, hey, I broke porcelain baby Jesus. What does this actually mean? But in all seriousness, though, I don't want the same job as the sheep. I, I don't want to be a, a bystander. I think we are called to be more than just bystanders. If you ever think my role in this, my response to the goodness of God and the gospel is to be a bystander, it's not. It's not. And the reason why it's not is when we see the nativity scene, no matter how much glue is holding them together, if it's like my parents, our response to the beauty of that story can never be a bystander because here's the thing. Jesus came, that baby is in that manger, and all this great story of Jesus leaving perfection with God the Father to be with us, that all happened for us. That all took place for us, and if that all took place for us, our response cannot be a glorified shoulder shrug. It can't just be to sit back and be a bystander. It has to be more. In fact, the more we understand who Jesus is and what he did, the better we actually understand our response. And so that's what we'll look at today, is to better understand who Jesus is, we better understand our response. And oddly enough, to actually get a great description of Jesus, we're going to be in Isaiah 9, really briefly. The prophet Isaiah came years, actually centuries, before Jesus. Yet he gives an amazing description of who Jesus is and part of his prophecy. He says this about the coming Messiah. He said, Isaiah 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a God is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. He goes on to say, Of the greatest of his government and the peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. An amazing description of Jesus that he fulfilled all of them. He fulfilled all of these things. He was exactly who Isaiah said he was going to be, and he's exactly the Savior that we need. But I want to look at the four ways that Isaiah described him, because if we understand these four aspects of Jesus will understand our response. So fill in the blank number one is this. He is wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. Now, counselor is, is interesting because we can all relate to that. Because we all have problems and we all seek out advice. We all have problems and we all seek out advice from a counselor, either a professional or just somebody there that we know. We all have problems and we all seek out advice. The question is this, is your counselor actually wonderful? Is he even good? We all seek out counsel, but not all counsel is wise. And Jesus is described as a wonderful counselor for a reason, some very, very specific reasons. He's described as a wonderful counselor in this, because we're seeking in a counselor as somebody who understands what we're going through. I want you to imagine you go to a counselor. We'll say you pay for this one. You go to a counselor, and you're sitting there, you're pouring out all of your problems, and the counselor from across the room just says, yeah, that sounds awful. Never done that before. 
I'm not going a second time if that's the case, correct? Jesus is a wonderful counselor because he actually cannot just sympathize, he can empathize with what we're going through. You see, he was born a man, fully God and fully man. He has gone through what we're going through. If you've gone through hardship, he's gone through hardship. If you've gone through pain, he has gone through pain. If you've gone through loss, John eleven thirty five, 35, the shortest verse in all of scripture, Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus. What you're going through, even especially in this holiday season, because sometimes holiday seasons are a little bit more difficult than others, Jesus has walked through it. He's been hurt. He was betrayed. He experienced loss just like we did. And he even understood temptation. Hebrews 4.15 expounds on it. Jesus understood temptation much like we do. It says, For we don't have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who was unable to empathize with our weakness, but one, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. See, both aspects are amazing. Because he's been tempted in every way that we have, yet he didn't sin. You see, when you're seeking out a great counselor, a wise counselor, a wonderful counselor, you want someone who understands what you're going through, yet actually has the answers. It's both and. Someone who understands what we're going through, yet actually has the answers. I want you to think about this. When you seek out somebody to get advice from, you seek out counsel, you usually seek out somebody who's either a good listener, (laughs) or you seek out somebody who has great answers. Sometimes the people who have they have great listeners. They make eye contact. Oh, it's so good, isn't it? And then they have no idea what to do next. <laughs> Other times, somebody has great advice, but they have no sympathy or empathy. Here's the beauty about Jesus. He's both. He is the one who always listens, who knows what we're going through, who has gone through it, yet actually has the wisdom and the power to do something about it. That's why he's not just a good counselor. He's not just a great counselor He is a wonderful counselor. It sums up this in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the way he described. So the question is this, will we actually seek out the wonderful counselor? Will we actually seek out the counsel from the wonderful counselor who actually is able to ease our burdens and his yoke is light? How do we respond to who Jesus is and the beauty of the Christmas stories? We see this. He's the wonderful counselor that we seek counsel from. But here's the thing. No matter how great a wonderful counselor it is, No counselor is very useful that's never visited or ignored. They have to be visited and actually listened to, don't they? You can have the best counselor in the world. Imagine you're talking to a friend and you say, man, you're seeing a counselor has really helped you? They said, yes, haven't gone in nine months and I didn't listen to them, but they're great. You'd be a bit skeptical, wouldn't you? You see, our response is we have to seek out his counsel and listen to his counsel because he is a wonderful and mighty counselor. Now, the next way that Isaiah describes him is this. He describes him as mighty God, as mighty God. 
What's interesting is we sometimes miss this description of Jesus around Christmas time. Because what type of Jesus do we think of during Christmas time? Cute, adorable Jesus, right? That's what we think of around Christmas time, and we should. We should. Was Jesus born a baby? Absolutely. I have no doubt. He was adorable, okay? <laughs> I'm not even going to go there. Never mind. Like, he was born as an adorable baby. I have no doubt, and he was. But here's the thing. Sometimes we can see that, and we fail to remember that he is also a mighty God. The mighty God left perfection with God the Father to be born in a manger in humble situations. You say, I don't know how to actually kind of understand both of those. And the beauty of it is, is it kind of leaves a tension, doesn't it? And it's actually a beautiful tension. If you read John chapter 1, we're not going to walk through it today, but if you want to go home and read this, it's a beautiful chapter where it talks about in the beginning was the Word, and that was Jesus himself, and the world was spoken into existence through him. It didn't say that Jesus was just there off to the side. No, the world was spoken into existence through him. And by the time you get down to verse 14, it switches and it says, and he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The beauty of the Christmas story is it's a mighty God who chose to be with us. It's a mighty God who chose to be with us. And here's why that matters so very much. Matthew 19, verse 25 Jesus was talking with his disciples about a rich individual, a rich young man who had come to him and asked about how he can have eternal life. But the problem is he had many riches and he didn't want to give them up. And look what Jesus says, verse 25. When the disciples heard this, a discussion about the rich young man and salvation, they were greatly astonished and asked, who can be saved? Good question, isn't it? Who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That's a quote we've heard oftentimes, with God, all things are possible. But sometimes we use it to, to reflect on whatever we want to do and say, hey, God, can you help me do this? Well, if you look at the context of what he's talking about, he's saying, what does he mean when he says all things are possible? What's he referring to? Salvation. When he said all things are possible, you know what he was saying? That because he's a mighty God, because he is God himself within the flesh, he has the power to save us from our sin. You see, what we can easily do is we can fail to remember how great of a miracle that is. We hear about these miraculous things that happen, and we think, man, it's a miracle. Look at the power of God. And yes, that may be true. That may have been a miracle. But remember this, the greatest miracle that God ever did was saving us from our sin the greatest work he ever did. That despite all that I've done, despite the times that I ran from God and rebelled from God and that we ran from God and we have rebelled from God, he saved us. You know who could save us from our sin? A mighty God. That's why Isaiah described him that way because we needed a Savior who was mighty. The question is, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to a mighty God who decided to be born as a baby. We remember this, that he was born there as a baby for one reason, to save us. He was fully God and fully man. Because he's fully God and fully man, he could one day go to the cross and die for the sins of all mankind, pay the penalty that we never could so we can have eternal life in him. So for some of us, our response to this today, your response to this today is to believe in him 
for the very first time today, to trust in him. But for others, we have to say, you know what, God, I know you're a mighty God. I need to renew my trust in you. I need to reestablish my trust in you. I have wavered in my trust, but I can always trust in a mighty God. The next way he describes him is everlasting father. This one is interesting. This one is, is so important. Everlasting Father, for some of us, it's a little bit easier to relate to this than others. Some, it's difficult. Some of you guys, maybe you didn't have a great relationship with your father growing up, okay? Some of you guys may not have. I I had a great relationship with my father growing up. I did. And so I I get this, but here's what I want you to see. There is no father who is perfect in every single way. (laughs) That, That person does not exist. What he's saying, when he's saying everlasting father, he is saying he is a father that, that, that never fails. And so whether whatever your childhood looked like, he is still the everlasting father. He is still the perfect father. Whether you have some great memories growing up of that or you have some little more difficult memories growing up, he is still the everlasting father. You want to know why? Because he's a perfect expression of power and love. He's a perfect expression of power and love. Look how it describes him. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, who is referring to? The Son. It is referring to Jesus, referred to as the everlasting Father. It says this, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's a lot of power, isn't it? That is Jesus. That is him, and all power is in him. But look how it also describes him. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fulfillment dwell in him. Look at his love right here. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Literally, the world was spoken into existence. He holds all things together, yet he died for us. All power and authority is in him, yet he came to earth to be with us. You see both his power and his love when it describes of an everlasting father. Reminds me when I was a kid, we had a we had a ranch we'd go out to, and my dad had this stick shift truck, okay, and it was super beat up, but I loved that truck. And we were going to the gate, and he actually got out to get the gate. I was so little, I didn't get the gate. If you grew out in the country, like you're a kid, you got the gate. Well, I was little enough, I wasn't even getting the gate at this point. And of course, he went out and got the gate, and the truck. It slipped into neutral, okay? And so what did it start doing? It started creeping forward. And I have to emphasize creeping forward. Like it was moving at half the speed of smell. Like the, the speed I'm walking at, it was going slower, okay? In my little five-year-old mind, though, what was happening? It was going 90 miles an hour off a cliff. Like this is the last scene off of Speed with Keanu Reeves. Like this is not going to end well. I was terrified. So you know what I did? I started screaming bloody murder. 
like put my face up against the back windshield and started crying out, please, Daddy, save me. And so my dad loves this story because he describes it as he just sees his truck slowly going by half a mile an hour. And this five-year-old in the back glass just, ah, like screaming bloody murder. And why was I crying out for him? Because I was terrified at the moment, but I viewed my dad as someone like, he had all powers in him. He, like, he's gonna, he can save me from this. He, he loves me. He's not going to let anything bad happen to me. He's, he can help me in this situation. And, of course, he did. And I, I remember when he jumped into the cab to put on the brake, he was crying. And at first, I'm like, oh, that upsets you? I realize now as an adult, he was laughing so hard that he was actually <laughs> crying. And that's what reminded him of this. But it was an image of like we, we, we cry out to parents, to a loving father, because we trust their ability to help and their love, right? The perfect embodiment of power and love is Christ. That's why the Bible describes him as a loving father, as an everlasting father, because he is actually the perfect embodiment of power and love. And so the question is this. How will we respond to it? How does Scripture call us to respond to, to a loving father, to a, to a father full of love and power? He calls us to submit. Now, submit isn't a word that we like very much in 2019, and I don't think it's going to change very much in 2020. But here's the thing. Is it a bad word? No, it's a great word. We respond to God's love, to his everlasting fatherness with submission. Say, God, I know that you want what's best for me. I know that you're full of love and power, and I submit to you because of those things. I submit to you no matter how old I am. I submit to you. Last way he describes him is he describes him as a prince of peace. Prince of peace. Jesus said this about the fact that he's the prince of peace. He says, John 14, verse 27, towards the end of his earthly ministry, he says, peace I leave with you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. He said, he wasn't just giving just a general peace. He was giving his peace. He said, I don't give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Now, he was saying this at the end of his ministry. He was saying this at the end of his ministry to his apostles. Most people would not describe the next couple of years for many of those apostles as peaceful. The early church was persecuted. Many of them went through extremely difficult times. In fact, all of them did. And so what Jesus wasn't saying here is he wasn't saying, hey, just believe in me, everything's going to be peaceful after that. Nothing bad will happen. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, my peace I leave with you. In other words, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of all of our troubles and trials, and for some of you guys, holiday seasons, this holiday season, this Christmas season, it was chaotic. For some of you, it was difficult. Or maybe it reminds you of a difficult time. And you say, God, why isn't this peaceful in this time? Why haven't you given me peace in this time? He has. He's given us His peace. His peace is this, is no matter what may happen, whatever trials may happen, Port Lavaca, Lone Tree, Victoria, no matter what trials may happen, he is always there, and that gives us a peace. But that peace isn't just something that is just given. It's something we have to actually seek out. 
And so we seek out the peace that he gives us. We seek it out by saying, God, I need to rest in you. This is all more than I can handle. I need to rest in you. Remind me of the peace that you have given me. The world's chaotic, but I have peace because I have you. The God who never leaves, the God whose love is never questioned, and an eternity that can never be altered because the world can't take away what it didn't give. He's the Prince of Peace, so how do we actually respond to it? We rest in His peace. And so I challenge you, how do you need to respond today? The one option that's not given to us, spectator. We're not the sheep. (laughs) Our role is not spectator. Our role is to respond because that manger scene, that nativity scene, that Christmas story happened for us. In in Poor Lavaca, Lone Tree, Victoria, Lone Tree, it happened for us. He came for us. He came to die for us, to be our everlasting Father, to give us peace, to show that He is a mighty God, to give us wise counsel. He did all of that for us, for you, for me. The question is, how will we respond to it? Will we actually seek out his counsel and then submit to it? Will we actually trust in him as a mighty God? Will we actually rest in his peace? Will we submit to his authority as a loving father? How will we respond? Mary and Joseph and and all the individuals, the characters that played a part in the nativity, seeing the Christmas story, they give an example. So walk in obedience. The question is, how will we respond? I want to pray that we may have the courage and the boldness to respond. And maybe for even some of us today, your role, your next step, your response needs to actually be believe in Christ for the first time. To trust that he is a loving Savior, a mighty God who came to earth to live the life that you couldn't, to die the death that you couldn't, to pay the penalty of your sin that you couldn't, so that you may have eternal life in him when you believe in him. That may be your step today, and I pray that you take it with boldness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. God, we thank you that you love us, that you care for us, that the Christmas story happened for us. You came to save us. You came to love us. You came to be with us. God, may we never respond to that much love, that much pursuit, that much sacrifice with a glorified shoulder shrug. May we never view ourselves as spectators, God. We're not spectators. We are called to respond to what you did. For some today, maybe that that actually looks like believing you for the first time, because the first time today, they understand that you love them, that you pursue them, that they are a sinner in need of a Savior, just as I was, Lord, just as we all were, Lord. But their role today is to reach out, to trust, believe in you. I pray they may do that today, maybe marking that belief in you with a simple prayer. Praying, dear Lord, I am broken. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And I believe that Savior is Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for anyone that believed in you, that trusts in you for eternal life. God, I pray all the more for every believer who's been a believer for weeks, months, years, 
God, may we never just get used to the Christmas story. May we never just become accustomed to it, Lord. May we always remember our response is more than just spectator. It's to trust in you, to worship, to go and tell, to listen to your wise counsel, to submit, God. May we never just settle for being a spectator, Lord. God, I pray you may help us remind that. Remember that day in and day out, Lord. Lord, we love you. We cherish you. We submit to you today.